0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number eight, the class which was originally supposed to be the last class of the Ways of Beleriand, but is now the penultimate class of the Ways of Beleriand. Welcome. We are going to <clears throat> we are going to get through the end of the original poem today. Um, it's uh, it's going to be good. Um, and actually, not only are we going to get to the end of the part of the poem that Tolkien wrote. Um, it is my plan to go further than that and get to the end of the poem that Tolkien didn't write tonight. So that's exactly just just to spell out precisely how ambitious uh, I am planning to be in tonight's class. That's uh, that's <clears throat> indeed my plan. So okay, um, quick announcements. First, uh, classes have started this week. Um, classes are off to an awesome start. We've been, I, you know, the first sessions of the classes have all happened. Uh, it has been, it has been so awesome. Um, said so the Star Wars class last night, uh, John Garth Tolkien's Wars class the night before. I was watching uh, Mike Drought's first Anglo-Saxon video. Uh, it's been great. We got a wonderful turnout for all of our classes this term. Um, it's uh, just a really awesome group of people. Really, really great classes. There's still time. Enrollment for the classes is still open through the second. Week. I mean, of course, as of now. If you haven't signed up yet, you're missing them. Uh, but you know, it's still plenty of time to get caught up. Um, but just wanted to let to it sort of remind you in case you've been forgetting that that's uh, uh, that's uh, that's on the way. Um, so, uh, oh, oh, cool. Yeah, Corita was saying she uh, was uh, saw us on the Star Wars class. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, it is. Uh, it's 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 pretty cool. Doctor Sturgis is the bomb. Um, second. Uh, quick announcement. Ah, this do not forget is our next book, and if you haven't read this book yet, don't forget that it's very thick, <laughs> so you might want to get started in advance <laughs> reading this book. Um, uh, I, you know, we're so we're gonna. I'm planning to take one week off after uh, the Elizabethan class. So this is going to go through now through the 2nd of September. Then we'll uh, take one week off and then we'll go through... Um, uh, we'll go through the end of... Uh, uh, well, I don't even know how long it's going to take. But we'll then we'll start uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, Tom, I'm thinking right now... I mean, I've not finished the details planning it out, so I might change my mind about this. But I'm thinking nine sessions uh, for this. Um, the... If you want to again, if you want to get started on the first class reading, I'm thinking uh, chapters one through eight uh, of part one that takes us up through, I, I believe, uh, uh, through the yeah through uh, through page 115. Um, so the first 115 pages uh, of the book. Uh, anyway, yeah, I'm I'm still reading it. I've never read this book before, as I've been telling everybody. This is uh, uh, the first book that's been uh, elected. Uh, in the mythgard academy series that i 've never read at all um and i 've been excited to read this for a little while so i'm i am i 'm still reading it um about uh, almost halfway through now uh so I, I still got plenty of reading to do uh but uh, but I, as i say i've been i've been really enjoying it but i'm i'm thinking yeah i'm thinking like nine weeks a little over a hundred pages a week something like that that's that's that's, that's it's my back of the envelope so far. Once I finish, I'll make final decisions, depending on how I want to break things up. Uh, but, but that's kind of my estimate here. So we'll start middle of September, go through Thanksgiving essentially. Um, but, um, yeah. So anyway, so that's, um, that's where we are so yeah where am i exactly tom i just uh i, I just got up through uh a jonathan strange just came home to england after being in the napoleonic wars a s- section i particularly enjoyed actually uh with uh lord Wellington. um so that's uh, that's where and sarah oh uh, yeah no you're right sarah we do need to talk about the bbc series i didn't mean to do that so i'm gonna have to add a session or two at the end there maybe probably two sessions um yeah, you're right. You're right, Sarah. Uh Thanksgiving's a forlorn hope. <laughs> it really is. So uh, anyway, we'll um, um, we'll see. We'll see. Well, I, 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 so I promise. I, my, my goal is to have the schedule published and ready for you by next week, so that you can have the. But I just want to give you a little advance notice, so that in case you're, you know, wanting to get started early, uh, just to remind you to start reading and to let you know where we're going to go for the first week. So. Uh, that's, that was my second announcement. Third, don't forget that Friday, uh, on this week we have the second episode of Silmarillion's, uh, the... This I almost said the Silmarillion seminar, Silmarillion film project season one. Uh, last time we did, uh, we planned out the plot. That was so much. Fun. I don't know if you've uh, if you've been listening to the Silmarillion film uh, project series, um, but it has been it's been so much fun. And uh, in the last episode, we were planning out the overall plot arc of season one, which is going to go from the Ainulindale through the awakening of the elves. So really through the through the you know that uh, that uh, first war and the chaining of Melkor. Um, so it's going to be entirely focused on the Valar and in particular in the episode, my favorite part was really doing a lot of thinking about the character of Melkor, what, what's really going to be kind of making him tick um, what, um, what do we see what does Melkor desire how does he see himself, what is his relationship like with the Valar um, anyway, it was, it, was, it was really cool and actually I hope to be coming back to that by the end of class tonight um, so um, anyway, that's um uh, that's that's uh, that. That'll be, so this week we're going to follow that up, <clears throat> and we're going to be talking specifically about the frame narrative, especially thinking about um, uh, thinking about where you know. So we're going to f- uh, follow up with some of the suggestions that uh, some of the listeners have had, and then we're going to uh, go ahead and think about the frame narrative, um, which we're focusing on. It's being probably uh, uh, almost certainly young Aragorn. So. Talk about that on Friday, and then immediately afterwards, I'm doing my Twitch stream. Uh, you can watch the adventures of young Grifflet uh, as he goes through and meets Radagast the Brown, and uh, 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 we'll look at some of the the particular kinds of adventures that Radagast uh, sends Grifflet on. That's uh, uh, actually that whole sequence is a, a favorite of mine uh, in Lotro, and this particular story that they're adapting there, I think, it's pretty cool. So. Uh, That will be happening on... those. Both of those things will be happening on Friday. Silmarillion Film Project at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and uh, my LOTRO stream at 12.30 p.m. All right. Without any further ado, let us get right into the ways of Beleriand as we have a lot to cover um, and a diminishing amount of time in which to do it. So I want to focus and remember the overall emphasis tonight, the, the the sort of the major theme I want to be looking at, as we've been as I've been talking about, is release from bondage. As I've said before, I find that title, sort of subtitle, I guess perhaps, really a title of this poem, uh, to be a, a r- just extremely um, uh, uh, evocative, um, and I want to be looking at various different ways in which that idea comes up once you start thinking about that and looking at that you just find it everywhere in this poem um so i want to be looking at what is the overall trend what is really sort of the the story behind this in what sense in what senses is the story of baron and luthien the story of release from bondage now um i want to start with you know we were in uh Thu's Tower tower we were looking spending a lot of time with the uh uh, for which I sh- I still shall not apologize. Spending a lot of time uh, in the song battle between Thú and Felagund, we're of course going to be beginning with the aftermath of that and looking at Luthien's rescue of uh, Baron from the dungeons of Thú. And uh, I want to start with the scene. Hang on a second. Oh, yeah, I want to start with the scene where um, not not where Luthien actually uh, 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 releases. Baron, but when she uh, when she comes up and, and sort of calls out to him and he hears her, and she wait he hears her and he sings back um, that um, that moment of course, is something i you mean know, i 've talked in uh, in a couple of different uh, contexts in several different podcasts about um, the the fascinating parallels that I see between this moment and the mo the moment, for instance, with Mytheros and Fingun right when mytheros is is uh, you know his wrist is stapled to the mountainside uh, on Thangarodrim and Fingon sings from down below and then Mithros sings in response and thus is Mithros discovered when Fingon can't find him and of course the obvious parallel between that and the scene with Frodo and Sam um, in, the, in The Return of the King when Sam is also in despair being unable to find Frodo and he sings and hears Frodo um, singing in response, and that's how uh, the, uh, uh, Frodo's hiding place is revealed. The parallel between, of course, Frodo and Sam and Fingon and Mithros is extremely close, even to the, the fact that you know it's up higher, like higher than you can climb by any path, right? Fro- Sam needs a ladder to get up to the trap door in the ceiling where Frodo is. Um, you know, Fingon has to scale up the side of the cliff to get to uh, to where to where Mithras is um, so th- those are obviously very very parallel moments but bo- but both of them, both Frodo and Sam and Mithras and and also an, um echo this moment and i 'm especially interested in this particular depiction of this moment. Um, this is my favorite version of this moment by far um, uh, the the full version of this that we get in the lay of Lathian um because here we see Tolkien doing something different um. We see, we see Tolkien doing something different with this whole sing-and-response-by-the-prisoner uh, motif. Um, and I want to I I I look at that. So, so, as I read this, um, t- two questions I want to come back to at the end of the passage. First, what is her song exactly? We were looking some about magic and song and how that seems to work last time. What, 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 what song is she singing? What is her song doing? Okay? And then secondly, his song. What is his song? And what is his song doing? Okay? Those are the things I want to come back to after we read the passage. So, okay. The silences were sudden shivered to silver fragments. Faint there quivered, a voice in song that walls of rock enchanted hill and bar and lock and powers of darkness pierced with light. He felt about him the soft night of many stars, and in the air were rustlings and a perfume rare, the nightingales were in the trees, slim fingers flute and viol seas beneath the moon, and one more fair than all there be or ever were upon a lonely knoll of stone in shimmering raiment danced alone. Then in his dream it seemed he sang, and loud and fierce his chanting rang, old songs of battle in the north, of breathless deeds, of marching forth to dare uncounted odds and break, great powers, towers, and strong walls shake, and over all the silver fire that once men named the Burning Briar, the seven stars that Varda set about the north were burning yet, a light in darkness, hope in woe, the emblem vast of Morgoth's foe. Okay. First. Her song? What's her song? Good. Yeah. Kate, uh, Tom, Carita, um, Yana. Yeah. She seems to be singing of the moment when he first saw her. Um, yeah. There does seem to be a recreation of that. Once more, we ha- we see Baron seeing Luthien from afar, right? Seeing Tenuvio from afar, dancing upon the knoll. Um... In shimmering raiment right the music the uh the the soft night air right it's it's he is like he is he is taken back in that moment notice how her um her song pierces the walls the hill and of course the bars and locks right we get the we get the ruiz from bondage motif worked in immediately right there um so in the middle of this darkness remember baron is near despair right he's 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 sitting there in the uh in in the dungeon with the body of of right who's just died um and he has this vision of their first meeting um and josiah that's a really good way to uh um uh to describe it uh Josiah says uh that uh, her song transports Baron back to that place and to that time uh in his mind um that does seem to be that does seem to be the case um what's he what's his song her song is simpler in the sense that we're getting you know the, the whole description of her song is a description of the one scene, right? Um, It's associated with light, right? From the, um, uh, even the imagery of the silences were sudden shivered to silver fragments uh, through, you know, the powers of darkness are pierced with light. um, And then he feels about him, the air. So again, the whole, whole experience, whole sensual experience of being there in that other place at that other time is sort of brought back to him but his song in response is more complicated in the sense that it has more parts, right? Um, His song is loud and fierce. Old songs of battle in the north, of breathless deeds, of marching forth to dare uncounted odds and break great powers. Um, So wait, old songs of battle in the north? Which, which, which battles in the north? Specifically, is he singing about? I mean, you know, just like generally northern battle. What, um, yeah, what are our options here? Um, well, not the battle of unnumbered tears, that's not happened yet, right? Um, Josiah the Dagor-Bragalach is the one that came right before, right? That's certainly the most recent battle in the north. That's the one in which his father Barahir saved Felaghan's life, for instance, right? Um, That's the one where kind of his homeland was kind of wrecked and how he and his dad and their uh, friends ended up uh, 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 as um, um, outlaws. It could be that. I mean, again, you know, that's it's sort of the the war in the north with the most personal relevance to Beren, right? And Baron's own uh, sort of family history and experience. But look what it says about it. Okay, so what about the battles in the north? Breathless deeds of marching forth to dare uncounted odds. Okay, all right, and break great powers, and towers, and strong walls shake. Mm. Uh, really? Uh, I mean, okay, that's not how the Dagger bragalak went, right? I mean, you know, maybe this is like an alternative history of the Dagger bragalak you know, it's, what would have happened if they won? But it wasn't an offensive battle, it was a defensive battle. Morgoth attacked them! Right, um, they were besieging Angband, and then boom—the the the, the leaguer of Angband got broken when Morgoth came out with the flames, and then the, you know that all seems to be here in the earlier stories. Back in the Book of Lost Tales, we didn't have the dagger Bragalak yet. That concept certainly does seem to be here now. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't. I th- this doesn't sound like it. Um, this is an offensive battle, marching forth to dare uncounted odds and break great powers and towers and strong walls shake and then we get a hint, right and overall the silver fire that once men named the burning briar and the seven stars that Varda set about the north were burning yet a light in darkness, hope in woe the emblem vast of Morgoth's foe what are we talking about what are we referring to The sickle of the Valar, yeah, yeah, the Big Dipper, exactly, Tom. Yeah, it's it's this is um, a slightly more uh, heroic way <laughs> of describing that particular constellation than uh, the Big Dipper. But yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's that's it's the sickle of the Valar. I do think that this goes back to the to the chaining of Melkor. Um, I think the war, you know, the battle in the north that's being alluded to is the battle of the the Valar against Melkor. When Melk, that was an offensive battle. That was the moment um, when people, when there were breathless deeds of marching forth to dare uncounted odds and break great powers and towers and strong walls. Shake. At the very least, it's the memory of that, right? Um, You know, sure, you can say like, okay, maybe the Valar themselves, in person, coming in might to Utumno. Um, it's a little hard to describe, you know, like a battle that has like, you know, Tolkas and 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 uh, Orome and you know Aeonwe and everybody all on one side, and Morgoth and his and his lackeys on the other side as uh, daring uncounted odds. Um, you know, I mean, I think if Tolkis is on your side, your odds are pretty good, actually. So, uh, so. But but nevertheless, I do think that the parallel is 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 still there. Um, he is uh, he speaks of doing what the Valar did, in a sense that is marching to the north um, and uh, uh, shaking strong walls and and towers and great breaking great powers, um, and. Uh, and then of course he and then it, we have the, the sort of the central emblem the burning briar, the seven stars uh the sickle of the valar um the emblem vast of morgoth's foe so the valar came and did this before the valar the sign of the valar the emblem of the valar still hangs in the sky above uh angband um so i mean i i don't think he's you know, like recalling us well, okay, no, I do think he's recalling that battle with the Valar. But he's not singing a song of that battle. Again, notice his song is different, fundamentally different from Luthien's, right? She is recalling the night when he saw her. He is singing a song ultimately really about the future, right? I mean, daring uncounted odds and shaking strong walls, and that's what he's going to do right? If he continues his quest and goes to Angben, he'll be daring uncounted odds, right? But it's a song of victory that he's singing. It's a triumphant song that he's singing and sort of paralleling um, the conquest of the Valar, right? He's going to be going where the Valar went and under the sign of the Valar, by extension perhaps with the Valar's backing and by the grace of the Valar, um, what do what do these how are these two songs connected <clears throat> or to say this another way, in what sense is his song an answer or a response to hers rather than a non sequitur right uh uh you know, Arthur was sort of joking about the fact that seems you know to be perhaps a little bit of gender stereotype going on here that like the two of them sing right she sings about their relationship, and the night she they first met, right? And he sings about marching forth to battle, right? Uh, kind of masculine and feminine there. Um, yes, yes. I, you know, kind of hard to get around that completely, um, but of course I do think there's more to it than there. Um, uh, Corita says she encourages and he responds with courage. Yes, yes. Um, uh, good, More. More, more. How do these two things go together? Yeah, Luthien is looking back, and he's looking forward. Yana, I agree. I agree. Um, Tom, you're right that Beren's song is a kind of a prophecy, right? Um, It's uh, it's not just a prediction. It's not just you know saying, you know, I'm going to win. We're going to win. You know, Morgoth shall be overcome. But, um, it's, um, uh, it's more a song of courage. Remember, again, I'm thinking back to Sam's song in the Tower of Kirith Ungol now. Um, uh, remember the narrator of The Return of the King tells us that Sam's song had been defiance rather than hope. Uh, and I can't help but think that that same description applies to Baron's song here, that this is a song of defiance and not of hope. And not of hope. So why is that? Of course, it's, it is a direct response to uh, the two of them. Kate, uh, what a wonderful observation, Kate. Kate Neville says... Uh, Notice how the first song is uh, Luthien's light, right? Light comes in, the light pierces the dark, the light of Luthien pierces the darkness, and in the vision that her song creates, we have her dancing, shimmering in the light, right? In Shimmering, Raiment danced alone. And then uh, his song ends with this light of the stars, right? The light of the stars of the Valar, the emblem vast of Morgoth's foe, right? Um, So those two things... Are sort of connected, or sort of one leads uh, one sort of leads to the other it's at least certainly an, an, an interesting parallel there um, he is in despair what she provides him is not necessarily hope though I think we can see some hope in all, in those five lines emphasizing the seven stars the burning briar, the emblem vast of Morgoth's foe, um they are not alone, and Morgoth does have enemies who kicked his butt before and can probably do it again. That is, there's hope going on there, I think. But fundamentally, Baron's song is a song of defiance. He has moved from despair to defiance, and, like, what's the link? The link is her song, right? That image of her dancing on the knoll, this is what he's fighting for, right? Um, this. It's been a long time since he left Doriath, and um, a reason he doesn't even know what you know, it's, you know. So, the fact that it's not just that he's reminded, oh, yeah, Luthien, right, he hasn't forgotten about her, right, but h- hearing her and getting that direct reconnection to their relationship, um, to the reason why he is doing this, um, uh, even I, I agree, Karita, even in more general terms, and Kate, coming back to the point that you were making, you know, her, her singing about. Um, about you know beauty and peace and music and, and 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 goodness you know all those things sort of associated with their relationship and with that night for him and of course not to mention here's another parallel Kate it's not just the light thing right um, that particular moment of their relationship of him seeing her from afar and she the shimmering shining semi-divine one having gra- showing grace to him Right. Um, Turning to the man alone in the darkness, um, alone and weary and hopeless in the darkness and turning to him and showing him pity and love instead of uh, instead of disdain, instead of him suffering the loss that seems, you know, I mean, okay, yeah, there are uncounted odds uh against his succeeding in his quest for the silmaril but you know what the odds against him succeeding in uh uh you know getting lúthien to put her hand in his were pretty darn uncounted too um so that I think is another really sort of interesting um interesting parallel um tom thinks that his song is uh actually one of hope rather than defiance um yeah maybe tom uh, tom says sam saw that the shadow was a passing thing and ultimately didn't matter um yes yes um you know above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell i will not say the day is done nor bid the stars farewell that sam's the culmination of sam of of, of sam's song, right um so yeah his song is about putting things into perspective Um, Yes, though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, beyond all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. Um, So yeah, yeah, things are bad right now, so this is why it's not a song of hope, because he's like, things are really bad right now and whatever, I might die, things might not work out, I'm not saying things are going to be pretty... But what I won't do is say farewell to the daytime, because I know that above and beyond all these things, the sun is still riding and the stars are still out. Um, there is, uh, uh, you know, beauty, high beauty that they can't, that the shadow can't touch, as he uh, uh, vocalizes to himself more explicitly when he sees the star later on. Um but you're right, Tom. That's not exactly what Baron is saying. And the difference is the is the is the Burning Briar, right? The difference is the sign of the Valar. Sam's is a more sort of general thought, as you said. The shadow is a passing thing. Baron Baron's song specifically recalls the might of the Valar, the fact that they have come and uh, uh, and taken care of Morgoth before, and the one thing that. Leads me to say that it's... Okay, well, there are two things, I guess I would say, Tom, to the idea that Baron's song is a song of hope. I still don't necessarily, necessarily, that is, see more hope in Baron for the success of his enterprise, necessarily, than Sam had. Um, Though, I mean, maybe, you know, the uh, breaking great powers and towers and strong walls shaking and all that stuff, you know... It's possible um, that he's sort of investing it, 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 investing his own confidence in the uh, in in the, the the grace of the Valar, maybe. Um, but um, but the other thing again is that he's not. Um, but 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 you're right. But you're right that he he knows a little bit more clearly than Sam did. Perhaps um, it's not just about there's light up beyond the shadow but he knows who the valar are and what they've done before and what they're likely to do again. Um yeah, yeah, Kate Kate says uh, uh that she kind of agrees with Tom more because the fact that Lúthien beyond all reasonable hope uh chose to return his love this would be a ray of hope that pierces his despair. Um uh quite uh, quite quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um yeah, Kimber says a lot more hope in the endeavor if he takes this Luthien along with him. Yeah, Kimber will get to the Baron's kind of slow to adopt that particular strategy, and we're, that's exactly what we're going to talk about here in a couple minutes. But first, we can't um, we can't skip over Luthian's defiance of Thú because I mean seriously. Now, Nigh the foul spirit Morgoth made, and bread of evil shuddering strayed from its dark house, when Luthien rose and shivering looked upon his throes. So here is Wolf... Uh, wolf I was called him Wolf Sauron. Wolf Thu, right, uh, with his with his, his throat clasped in the jaws of Huan. Huon has beaten him, right, and Huan is about to destroy the wolf body in which he is invested. And uh, uh, and Luthien comes out and delivers her awesome speech. O demon dark, O phantom vile, of foulness wrought, of lies and guile, Here shalt thou die, thy spirit roam, quaking back to thy master's home, His scorn and fury to endure. Thee he will in the bowels immure of groaning earth, And in a hole everlastingly thy naked soul shall wail and gibber this shall be, unless the keys thou render me of thy black fortress, and the spell that bindeth stone to stone thou tell, and speak the words of opening. With gasping breath and shuddering he spake, and yielded as he must, and vanquished, betrayed his master's trust. Okay, uh, of course you can see from my uh, 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 from uh, my subtitle here that I can't help but think about uh, Eowyn, Uh, and the Witch King when I get to this moment, and if you can help but think of Eowyn and the Witch King, how do you help that? I don't understand. Um, Notice, but there's there's sort of a fun parallel. Um, Her defiance of Thu... Now, uh, Luthien is in a slightly more advantageous position to be making this speech than Eowyn was, right? Aowen is facing the, the 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 Lord of the Nazgul in rather uneven, uh, rather an uneven battle situation, right? Um, whereas Luthien is saying to this when he is actually held clamped in the jaws of Huon, Hound of Valinor, um, so. Um, so yeah kate, kate neville says uh who is 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 slightly better uh, s- slightly better you know uh support team than mary uh is yeah yeah that no, absolutely that's certainly that's certainly fair um uh yeah yeah tom you're right the odds were pretty uncounted against awen in that particular moment uh, uh, agreed agreed um but the 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 sort of the, the defiance sounds like awen, but you know what's really fascinating to me Um, is the actual threat that she makes, the consequences that she spells out will happen to him if he does not submit actually sound like what the Witch King says to Eowyn. You notice that? Right? Um uh you know or your your flesh you know uh, uh, you shall be taken away uh uh to uh to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness where your flesh shall be devoured and your and your soul shall be left naked before the the lidless eye um that idea of uh um everlastingly thy naked soul shall wail and gibber it's actually it's actually kind of uh, uh, I, th- I think it's uh, it's 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 sort of interesting. Yes, Yana, I know Mary got the Witch King's knee, but I mean seriously, which would you rather have? <laughs> would you rather have a hobbit stabbity stabbing somebody in the back of the knee, or would you rather have the Hound of Valinor with its jaws around your opponent's throat? I mean, you know, come on, seriously, there's really no comparison here. Um, uh, but anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> <Okay>, yes, <yeah, so, laughs> Josiah thinks it's derivative right uh, Sauron remembered this and taught it to the Witch-king later on um uh anyway yeah yeah so um but I think that reversal is really kind of interesting but anyway forgetting the Eowyn parallel for a minute cuz it's not my entire point uh, a couple points that we can notice uh that we can notice here what is the nature exactly of lúthien's um of lúthien's Threat here. Um, what's she doing? What's she doing here? She wants him to give her the key, right? The opening spell, the words of opening to the tower, and more—the spell that bindeth stone to stone. Right. So there's um, there's uh, there's 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 this opening spell that he she insists on him giving her, or else they will kill him. Here thou here shalt thou die. What's going to happen after that is the consequences of his death. That to his spirit will roam, quaking back to thy master's home, his scorn and fury to endure. And here's probably what Morgoth is going to do to you if that happens. Um. Why doesn't she kill him? Why doesn't she kill him? Or I mean, like who on kill him? Right. Does she need the opening spell? Maybe. Certainly the most efficient way to get to Baron, as it turns out. Um, here's where I kind of come back to the interesting parallel between what she says to Thu and what the Witch King says to Eowyn, right? Um. When the witch king makes his threat to Aowen right how she shall be borne away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness and all that stuff, he's indulging himself right I mean yeah, he's trying to scare her, but she's already scared right he is indulging himself in sort of describing and thinking about how she will be tortured right this is the horrible thing that's going to happen to you. I do not believe um. I do not believe that she, that Luthien is enjoying that, right? I don't think she's gloating over Thu. It's not purely gloating. It might be like a little bit of gloat, but I don't think it's just 100% gloat here, right? That she's like, oh yeah, here's what's going to happen to you, right? Because notice there's a condition, right? She's saying, here's the dreadful thing that's going to come upon you unless you do this other thing, in which case it won't right? The Witch King is just like, here's what's going to happen to you, right? Um, um, now, I know the Witch King's threat is technically conditional, right? Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn, but he will bear thee away that has a lamentation, right? So he's saying, I will do this to you if you come in between me and my prey, Right? with the implicit condition that if she doesn't, if she stands aside and lets him come in and like, you know, either take Theoden or dismember Theoden's body or whatever it was exactly the Witch King was planning to do to Theoden um, if she stands aside, he won't do that. He will just slay her in her turn probably, right? Rather than bearing her away to the Houses of Lamentation beyond all darkness. So that's nice, right? Um, if you can trust him. Um, but, uh, but it's very different. From what Luthien is doing, right? Luthien says, "Here's the path you're on, my friend. Right? Um, you're about to die. Um, Huon has you in his jaws, and frankly, if we do nothing, you'll probably bleed out. So, um, this is this is this is the path you're on, right? But there's an alternative for you, right? And all that needs to happen in order for you to uh, choose that alternative is to give me the opening spell to speak the words of opening." And uh, and he takes that. That is to say, there is the whole sort of the structure of Luthien's threat is ultimately one of pity. That is, she's trying to get something from him, um, but she's making a positive offer to him, not a threat. Right? Um, She's not threatening him. She's spelling out what is in the middle of happening. Right. Let us be clear upon the situation uh, uh, about the situation here, uh, uh, Mister Thu, sir. Right. Um, and he betrays his master's trust, um, and is released. Right. She releases him. Releases him, of course, from Huan's jaws. Releases him from death. Releases him from the. Uh, um, he has been preemptively released from the bondage that she predicted, right? He was going to, Morgoth was going to immure him in the bowels of groaning earth, right? Um, and he was going his naked soul is going to wail and gibber everlastingly in a hole by her prediction, right? Seems a plausible prediction, right? That was the bondage. So it was, it was e- eternal bondage in torment, um, Morgoth's torment, um, that she predicted for him, and she released him. From that, if he gave her the uh, um, the words of opening, um, yeah, Sarah King says, "Of course, if Morgoth ever finds him, he's still going straight to the hole in the earth." Uh, <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. Um, but uh, but anyway, again, it, it's it, to me it's fascinating that we can see even here her emphasis, even with Thú himself, is on. Release right—that he too is being released from the bondage that comes, that's due to come to him. Let's look at her uh, using the opening spell. Um, No, Arthur Thú never went back to Morgoth, as far as we know. Um, Now, I mean, he never. There's like the business in Numenor, right, where he does get them to start worshiping Morgoth. So it's not like he is. uh, completely setting up as a free agent entirely and, and uh, but no we have um, in the Silmarillion Sauron never comes into the story again after he flees in vampire form to, uh, uh, to Tower Nefu and he doesn't come back um, until the second age so that's all we know in the published Silmarillion but no I don't recall any other references but um, Anyway. um Yeah, yeah. Let's look at the opening spell. Lo, by the bridge a gleam of light, like stars descended from the night to burn and tremble here below. There wide her arms did Luthien throw, and called aloud with voice as clear as still it wiles may mortal hear long elvish trumpets o'er the hill echo when all the world is still. The dawn peered over mountains' wan, their grey heads silent looked thereon, the hill trembled, the citadel crumbled, and its towers fell, the rocks yawned and the bridge broke, and Syrian spumed in sudden smoke. Like ghosts the owls were flying seen, hooting in the dawn, and bats unclean went skimming dark through the cold airs, shrieking thinly to find new lairs in deadly nightshades branches dread the wolves whimpering and yammering fled like dusky shadows out their creep pale forms and ragged as from sleep crawling and shielding blinded eyes the captives in fear and in surprise from duller long and clinging night beyond all hope set free to light a vampire shape with pinions vast screeching leaped from the ground and passed, its dark blood dripping on the trees. And Huon, neath him, lifeless, sees a wolvish corpse. For Thu had flown to Tower Nafuin, a new throne and darker stronghold there to build. Okay. What do you notice what do you notice here F- first um first let's focus um going back a second let's focus on luthien's actual spell now first of all it's always really tempting to to read this as just like luthien's power her her might her song is so awesome that she just sings a song and wham, you know it just blasts uh it blasts the tower down That's, like, a little bit true, but it's not the whole story, of course. She was given by Thú the spell that bound stone on stone, so she is unbinding stone to stone, and boom, the tower falls over. So, um, it's not just a pure exertion of her power overcoming it. Um, but, um... But, uh, but anyway, yeah, so we get, um... Uh, it's, again, not just her might, but, um... But notice that I mean the imagery. I was really struck with, as you can tell, again from my sum, from my subtitle, by the dawn uh, imagery. Low by the bridge, a gleam of light, like stars descended from the night. Um, the dawn is peering over the mountains, Juan, as this comes in. Right. So as the dawn, as the sun rises, you know, the song and light of Luthian comes in. Um, I think it's uh, it's really cool. I think um, I think the dawn. It's going to play an important role in this scene when we get here in the Selm Film project. We'll have the sort of the sun coming over the horizon on one side and Luthien walking across the bridge and singing her song and she'll be shining and it will be like hard to tell whether it's light that's reflecting from her raiment from the sun or whether she herself is shining as she sings and between the two lights the tower crumbles. It's kind of awesome. Um, but um, Anyway, yeah, Kate, I agree. Her this song is more like Baron's song of battle, with the trumpets echoing and the uh, and the and and the towers collapsing. But Tom, you made a wonderful point about um, about her song. Um, uh, Tom says, "In her voice is the sound of the horns of Elfland." Absolutely, did you notice that, Tom? That really struck me too when I was reading through this passage. Um, Uh, where's the bit again, Um, called aloud with voice as clear as still at wiles may mortal hear, right? So notice you might almost expect that the narrator, of the you know, the the speaker of the poem would say the song she sang then was one so powerful that no song yet, you know, since has been like it, right? That's kind of the direction you might expect it to go, sort of her song was so superlatively like it's incomparable, but that's almost the opposite of where he goes, right? Instead, the speaker says she sang a song, and you can still hear a song like it, right? There's totally precedent for this. In fact, it was quite like the song that at wiles may mortal hear long elvish trumpets o'er the hill echo when all the world is still. So yeah, when you hear the sound, the horns of Elfland, Tom, exactly as you say, um, that's, um, that's 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 um, uh, uh, that's like what her song is I think that's enormously important here, remember her song to him before she sang him a song of Baron the mortal coming and seeing the uh, the you know the fairy princess dancing in the woods and his not daring to approach her, but her but you know then daring and her turning and uh, putting her hand in his um. Now her song sounds like the elvish trumpets o'er the hill echoing when all the world is still, like that elfish song that a mortal might just be able to hear, yeah, except this time it's coming towards him, right? Baron, the mortal in this case is in prison, and instead of hearing it faintly o'er the hill when all the world is still, right? It's like that song but it's walking across the bridge to him right, Um, it is coming to seek him and to find him rather than being this elusive thing that no mortal can touch, again it's almost the opposite of that and that is so cool um, yeah, Kate isn't that cool, Uh, Kate says it's a nice twist for Luthien the Nightingale, you know Tenuviel the Nightingale to be bringing Daylight back, super cool um, uh okay, good, good, um Notice, of course, what happens when Luthien knocks the tower down. Of course, prisoners are set free, right? We've got all everybody released from bondage going on all over the place, right? And it's almost like a side effect, right? She comes to rescue Baron and to free him, and when she does, just, free, you know, freedom, release from chains all over the place. Um, but notice it's not just... The uh, the pale forms, ragged as from sleep, crawling and shielding blinded eyes. It's also um, it's also the wolves whimpering and yammering, right? Um, remember the description of the werewolves before. Um, remember those descriptions where it sounded like the wolves themselves were being tortured, that they were be they were you know that these demon spirits were you know um were sort of invading and possessing the 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 evil creatures of thu were sort of twisted and tortured um by his magic and his will those whimpering wolves they i mean they may just be evil wolves that are terrified right now uh i mean between luthien and the sunlight and the breaking of the tower and huon over there you know they've got reason there's pl- there's plenty of reasons uh for whimpering and yammering to go around but um but but they were slaves too and I'm wondering if the wolves themselves uh are being are being released or being set free again remember we even had a similar kind of implication about Thu himself um uh, yeah, yeah now, the final reference of course um this of course, you know, the, the necromancer flies off to uh, to Mirkwood, right? See you in The Hobbit, Mr. Necromancer. That's why in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit we I'd say there's a necromancer who is in a tower. Um, in uh, he, That's the darker stronghold that he built over there in Tower Nefuin. Um, and uh, that's where Bilbo should go nowhere near that thing, right, on his trip. They don't want to go down to southern Mirkwood. Um, I'm not saying that Merkwood and Taurnafuin are geographically the same thing, that it's exactly the same world, but it's very clear. And you remember the, the, the descriptions that we were looking at for Taurnafuin, for that forest, for Deadly Nightshade, um, in the Children of Hurin poem, um, and how similar that sounded to the descriptions of Mirkwood. Um However he's redoing the maps and sort of taking out bits, it's clear that he's recycling that bit, and that Merkwood in The Hobbit is obviously... Um, very directly drawn from Tower Nafuin, and the fact that there is a tower with the necromancer living in it is really a direct borrowing uh, from this uh, poem. In fact, when the necromancer is referred to in chapter one, in the very first draft, the very first fragmentary draft that we have that Tolkien wrote um, of The Hobbit, chapter one, there's even a reference to Baron and Luthien, um, that the necromancer has been there in southern Mirkwood ever since ever since he had that little run-in with Baron and Luthien. Um, and yes, he is, when he, in uh, a vampire shape with pinions vast, a vampire shape means not Count Dracula, but a bat. Um, uh, vampire bats were just called vampires. Um This is, of course, post Dracula, so you know that's already Dracula is already uh, you know Bram Stoker's Dracula is already a major hit, but um, um, but it's still in general. I I think there's really no question that he means a vampire bat. Um, Okay, so the passages we've been looking at here so far, we're getting a pretty clear release from bondage thing, right? You know, a a pretty clear trend of the setting free of prisoners. Um, We've seen it being tied uh, you know, thematically to these ideas of hope and despair, right? Hope, despair, defiance, all that stuff that we were looking at. Um, uh, So, you know, there certainly seems to be a correlation there. Um, Let's move now to the uh, part you know, uh, Kim. This is the part that you were uh, Kimball. This part you were referring to before um, about Baron's desire to leave Luthien behind. Okay, and I want to look at this um, because I think it's a really important thing for us to understand where this poem is going. Sort of what's at stake in this poem, especially what's at stake in this poem compared to um, the Tale of Tenuvio Okay. Um, Baron has just been like, okay, I'll, we'll, we'll drop you off soon, right? Um, pretty soon we're going to part, and this is Luthien's response. Why part we here? What dost thou say just at the dawn of brighter day? Right, we just did the dawning thing, right? This was, a, you know, our reunion, clearly a good thing, right? This is, we got a good thing going on here. What's the plan here, Baron? For safe thou art come to borderlands, or which in the keeping of the hands of Melian thou wilt walk at ease and find thy home in well-loved trees. Duh. Right? There's Baron's response. Right? Uh, What do you mean, why are we parting here? Obviously we're at the edges of Doriath. You'll be safe here. Right? You know, it's the girdle of Melian. She's your mom. You'll be fine. Um, Right? So go find thy home in well-loved trees, because I want you to be safe, and I'm going off into darkness. Right? Okay. Um, Uh... Yeah, Carita. I know it is. It does seem kind of ironic, and you know, many people, uh, uh, of course, I believe, to be struck by this irony that he's obviously in a bit more danger than she is. Right? You know, she just came in and 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 laid waste to the ta- not just rescued him from the tower where he was imprisoned, but laid waste to the tower in which he was imprisoned. Right? So, um, you would think. That it would have been borne home to him that if anyone needs protecting, it's him and not her. Um, true, yes, that's certainly there. Um, but I think there's more to it than Baron just kind of, sort of, sort of trying to salvage his igno, his ego, or being ignorant of uh, uh, of of her comparative strength. Um, look at her her response here. My heart is glad when the fair trees, far up, up far off uprising gray at seas of Doriath and Violet. Yet Doriath my heart did hate, and Doriath my feet forsook, my home, my kin. I would not look on grass nor leaf there evermore without thee by me. Dark the shore of Isgalduin the deep and strong, why there alone forsaking song by endless waters rolling past, must I then hopeless sit at last, and gaze at waters pitiless in heartache. And in loneliness. The issue here I would like to sort of divert attention away from relative assessments of their strength, or assessments of their relative strength, right? Or of the practical advantages of keeping her along with him, right? Um, I think the most imp- the most important issue in this whole sequence, in the him trying to leave her behind, and her really insisting that she's not going to be left behind. I think the whole important thing in this scene is the question of mortality. Right? He is saying, I'm going to die. It's not just I'm going to die. It's, it's, not, it, the, it's not merely that the odds are incredibly good I am going to be killed. I am going to death. Like, right? that place is death. Angmar um no, not not Angmar, Angband. Similar, but different. Angband is associated in the early mythology with hell itself. That is like way, way back in the Book of Lost Tales day, uh Tolkien talked about Angband as the place literally where 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 bad people went after they died. Okay? It was literally hell. The holding place for the wicked souls of the dead. Um he abandoned that idea. Um uh, I, I don't know for sure why. If I had to guess, and it's a 100% guess, my guess would be um, that he didn't want Morgoth as a rebel to be playing a part in the... Um, everybody... The modern view of Christian hell, especially modern view of like medieval depictions of Christian hell, even Christian, even medieval depictions of the Christian hell usually focus on like demons as tortures, right? So you've got you've got the you've got the the, the, the damned souls under the torment of demons. So you've got the demons, you know, just like the, the modern idea of like, you know, you go down to hell and you meet Satan and he's like he like, like Satan like you know in Gary Larson's Farside cartoons, right? Satan welcomes you at the door of hell and he's like, come into my place and and everything. Um that's not how it works at all. Um that's not how it works at all. It, hell is the place of torment of Satan and his angels, and also the, dam, the souls. right? That is, they're not the cheerful custodians of hell. They are the chief of the incarcerated prisoners of hell. So it's not... It's, it's, it, it, that's a complete misunderstanding. In other words... Tolkien's original conception was more like the the modern misunderstanding, even the medieval misunderstanding, at times, of hell. Um, Where, again, Morgoth was, like, in charge of damned souls, like, as if this were his job and how the whole system was supposed to work. My guess is that that's why he abandoned this, that he didn't want that to... um, He he was uncomfortable with sort of the way that that worked out. It's hard to make... um, hard to make... um, Uh, Morgoth into, you know, like, the rebel who is in defiance of the order and the system that Iluvatar is imposing on things, if in fact he's playing this crucial role, like, I'm the guy who's the custodian of hell. Um, So anyway, that's... uh, So he has abandoned that. But yet, nevertheless, we can still see the word hell being used at least metaphorically of Angband many times uh, later on. And we'll look at that in a minute. Um, some of these sort of specific examples that we can still see of that very clearly in this poem. Baron believes he is going to death. Okay? Perhaps into death with a capital D when he goes to Angband. He does not want to bring Luthien with him into death. Right? So he says, I'm going to, I, not only am I probably going to die, I am going into death. You stay here. I want you to be safe. Right? Stay with your mom. Your mom will keep you safe. Um, I don't want you to go into death with me. I do not want you to die. I am willing to die. If I must die for your sake, it's okay, but I don't want you to die too, right? Um, notice her, the important element. I think here in her response, she says two things. Right, the first half of her uh, of her response to him is, let's not forget that I left Doriath on purpose, and I knew what I was doing when I did it. Right. So why would you think that I would just want to go, that going back there is going to be, like, awesome for me, right? I, 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 I My feet for my heart did hate Doriath, my feet forsook it. She admits, I like Doriath, right? It's, it's nice to see Doriath from a distance. My heart is glad when I see it, but I don't want to go there. I left it on purpose and I want to stay away. So the first thing she does is assert her will. Remember, I made the choice. But the second thing, and this is the thing that I really want to emphasize here, because I think it's it's easy to um, it's easy to focus on uh, yeah, Brian, mom is a nice treehouse waiting for you. Exactly. Um, it's easy to focus on the first part, which is a very important part, right? Her saying, no, 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 I have chosen. You can't choose for me. I chose, and I continue to choose you instead of Doriath, right? That is very important. But I think it's also very important to see the second part of the statement. um, Dark the shore of Iscaljuin the deep and strong. Why there alone forsaking song by endless waters rolling past must I then hopeless sit at last and gaze at waters pitiless in heartache and in loneliness. See what she's spelling out for him? What's she trying to explain to Mr. to like Captain Mortality over there? Right? You're an elf, daughter of Melian, and of Thingol uh, Thingol the King. You should go back to your elfish realm and be safe. Yeah, Nancy, immortality can get real lonely. Right? It does sound like hell, doesn't it, Tom? Um, She spells out for him, okay, Baron, let's imagine I do go back and live my immortal life back in Doriath while you go off and die. Okay, what's that going to be like? It's going to be like... it's not just about the treehouse. Of course, there's still that treehouse issue, Um, uh, but um, it's not just about the treehouse. The bondage in which she will be locked if she returns to Doriath is far greater because her choice and her love are still set upon him, if she returns to her immortal life in her uh, in her wood it will be locked into an immortality of heartache and loneliness Um, that, uh thinking of Esca- uh, Esgalduin, the river that runs in front of the gates of of Menagroth, thinking of the ri- of the waters of Esgalduin being endless waters rolling past that image that that i I, I you know that that image of the river, which seems to me to be sort of a metaphor of time, right time will be like the waters of Escalju- of es- rolling past endlessly, just this ennuous continuation of years in which I sit hopelessly gazing at the pitiless waters in heartache and in loneliness so baron does this actually sound like an upgrade right um yes exactly timothy the burden of everlasting life the alternative that he believes he's immortal right he's like there's life and there's death right so choose life life would be better right maybe you could be i'd rather have you safe than dead And she's like, really? You know, I'm not sure I would, actually. Right? Um, Being locked there in Doriath without you, and again, uh, you know, uh, uh, an immortal life. Immortal life of heartache and loneliness. uh, That's not a good alternative. Right? Jumping backwards for a second. Remember Feligon's final words? Um, Here's Felgen's final words to Baron in the darkness. Then a voice he heard, farewell, on earth I need no longer dwell, friend and comrade, Baron bold. My heart is burst, my limbs are cold. Here all my power I have spent to break my bonds, and dreadful rent of poisoned teeth is in my breast. I now must go to my long rest, neath Timbrenting in timeless halls, where drink the gods, where the light falls upon the shining sea. Thus died the king, as elvish singers yet to sing. The two things that I would emphasize is the alternatives that he sees. On the one hand, of course, like, we cannot, we, no, there's no, no no downplaying the sacrifice of Feligand. And yet, on earth I need no longer dwell, friend and comrade. Right? My heart is burst, my limbs are cold. I don't need to stay here anymore. Now I can go, and where's he going to go? He's going to go to his long rest neath Timbrenting in timeless halls where drink the gods, where the light falls upon the shining sea. That's not so bad, right? There is, even for Felagund, um, who is not, you know, watching uh, endless waters, pitiless, you know, in heartache and, and loneliness, um, th- even with him there's an element of relief to be finally going to his long rest neath Tim Brenting in Timeless Halls, right? Um, he's broken his chains. Literal chains, right? But in a sense also, that you know, that the, the, the chains that are keeping him here on Earth and away from Tim Brenting in the Timeless Halls where Drink the Gods, right? Um, he's going to go back and be reunited with Dad, right? So, not so awful that Right? But but again, so there's this, there's this question of release. Which would he rather? So again, Baron, um, death, not the worst case scenario. Right? Not the worst case scenario. Certainly not the worst case scenario for an elf. So, in this way, one thing that I think that we can see here is again, Baron thinking like a mortal, as I said. Baron not actually understanding what's at stake. Not thinking through what's at stake for Luthien. The elf girl. Um, in this, uh, we're facing certain death. We are marching into the land of the dead. Kind of situation that he finds himself in. Um, here's uh, Luthien when Lu- when he does leave her, right, and then Luthien catches up with him again. This is that uh, speech. Um, so he's just sung his really nice poem about her, uh, which we'll come back to. Um, but um, but then she comes from a distance and is like. Look, I've tried to explain this, so here's, she explains it again. Ah, baron, baron, came a sound, almost too late have I thee found. O proud and fearless hand and heart, not yet farewell, not yet we part. Thus do those of elven race, not, sorry, not thus do those of elven race forsake the love that they embrace. A love is mine, as great a power as thine to shake the gate and tower of death. With challenge weak and frail that yet endures and will not fail nor yield unvanquished were it were it hurled beneath the fountains of the world, beneath the foundations of the world, my reading is awful tonight. Let's pause for a second. see what we got? You see the reference that she just made in that uh, in that sentence, "A love is mine as great a power as thine." to shake the gate and tower of death with challenge weak and frail that yet endures and will not fail nor yield unvanquished were it hurled beneath the foundations of the world. Let's try to unpack that. It's a complicated sentence. She has a love. She has a love and a power as great as his. Her love is as great as his. In what sense is it as great? It is as great... Uh, as great a power to shake the gate and tower of death with challenge weak and frail that yet endures. Okay. We follow this? Yeah, Sarah, doesn't that sound like a, a reference to the song that he sang? That shaking the gate and tower sounds exactly like that. Right? And yes, Nancy, you're right. So far, her record at Tower Shaking is a little superior to his. Totally agreed. But she's not. She's not going there, right? Baron does or Luthien does not come up and be like, Baron, you idiot, right? Um, I think you'll need me. That's not the point, right? Notice how she's what she, how she is characterizing what he is doing, right? He is through his love. His love gives him a power to shake the Gate and Tower of Death. Wow. So, like, she's depicting him as, like, he's gonna come, like, in his dream, like, in his song, right? He's gonna come, and he's gonna conquer and take down death. Well, now, she does recognize that the challenge that he's delivering is weak and frail. Okay. That doesn't sound so, so confident. But there is still power in it, because although it's weak and frail, it endures. And it doesn't fail or yield. Even if... It's hurled beneath the foundations of the world. It might get chucked away, right? The challenge might be lost, it could, but uh, but yet he will not fail nor yield. And if it is hurled beneath the foundations of the world, it will be hurled there unvanquished. That's the strength. That's the power that his love gives him, right? He's going to go, and yeah, he might die. He's probably going to die, right? There's really like uncounted odds that he's going to die, Um, But nevertheless, it's a challenge, though weak and frail. It's a challenge that yet endures and will not fail nor yield. And so she says, she recognizes that in him and says, um, a love is mine, as great a power is thine. I'm I'm with you in this, right? And and no, she's not saying, your challenge is really weak and frail. (laughs) I I think I can up your odds. That's not what she says. Her emphasis is not, you have a better chance with me. She says, I too have the strength to offer a weak and frail challenge, which may be as weak and frail, and yet will also endure and not fail nor yield, right? We are in the same position. But now look. Beloved fool, escape to seek from such pursuit, in, in might so weak to trust not, thinking it well to save from love thy loved who welcomes grave and torment sooner than in guard of kind intent to languish, barred, wingless and helpless, him to aid, for whose support her love was made. Okay, alright. Hang on a second. Let's uh let's go let's go back in. Syntax complicated in this in this in this passage, right? Um Beloved fool, so he's 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 acting foolishly, right? Even though she says it with affection, right? He he's a beloved fool, right? Beloved fool. Um he is a beloved fool escaped to seek from such pursuit that is her pursuit the pursuit of her love um, the the, the love that is hers and and all that Um, foolish to try to escape from her Um, in might so weak to trust not thinking it well to save from love thy loved you think it's a good idea to save, through your love, because of your love, to save your beloved. Right? But your beloved welcomes grave and torment. I would rather be tortured and die sooner. That's preferable to me than to be in guard, than to languish in guard of kind intent. To be barred, wingless, helpless him to aid for whose support her love was made. Right? My love was made for you she says at the end, right? Remember that great doom that lies upon them? She says this, it's not just that I happen to love you, right? I was made to love you. This is my doom as well, and I have chosen it. And I cannot be, I will not be. It is not more kind. Um, you are a beloved fool, if you think, that to protect, to use your love to try to protect your beloved me from uh from from sorry you don't understand i would welcome grave and torment sooner and again there's that image of her by the river right in heartache and in loneliness stretching out through centuries and millennia no grave and torment sign me up for that that's better way preferable than the other um Yeah. Brian Dimmick asks, does Beneath the Foundations of the World refer to being imprisoned in Angband? Um... I don't know. I'm not sure if that's exactly what she's alluding to there. I mean, it sounds like hyperbole. An exaggeration, right? Poetic exaggeration. Um... I don't know if it's an exaggeration of, like, what their fate in Angband would be like or whether it's uh, referring to death itself. Um... I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure. But again, the, her overall point here is, Baron, you're not releasing me from bondage. You're trying to put me in bondage. That's not going to happen, right? Um, she tries to convince him. He is not setting her free. Go back to Doriath. You're free. You are putting me in prison, right? If you want to release me from bondage, bring me with you. Let me die with you. That is would be release from bondage. Well, then the hound weighs in on this question. Here's, uh, here's Hulan's point of view. This is him speaking to Baron, of course. Of one fair gem thou must be thief, Morgoths or Thingols, loath or leaf. Uh, loath or leaf is a wonderful old Middle English expression. Um, loath, of course, means. Uh, loath or leaf basically means whether you like it or not, right? Uh, leaf is the old Anglo Saxon word for love. Uh, and loath means hate. Okay, so, uh, uh, you know, whether you love it or hate it, uh, the situation is, you're going to steal a gem. Right? Are you going to steal Morgoth's gem, or are you going to steal Thingol's gem? Thou must here choose twixt love and oath. If thou to break is still thee, loath, then Luthien must either die alone, or death with thee. Defy beside thee, marching on your fate that hidden before you lies in wait. You're either going to go To Morgoth or not, but if you choose not, right, Luthien's still gonna be with you, right? Um, Huon gets what Baron doesn't get. There is no other option, right? What Baron is choosing, he's basically trying to choose sort of none of the above, in a sense, right? He doesn't want to steal Luthien because remember that is a factor here. Um, her dad said, "You can, you can, you know, you can marry my daughter if you bring." Silmaril. And Baron seems to take that seriously, right? So Luthien saying, No, I don't want to go home, I want to stay with you, Beren does seem to feel it's not I mean, he does not want her to die. That's the number one thing. But I think the way that Huan here um what Huan touches on, I think, is important. If they just hang out I mean, what's to stop them staying to here? They're together now, right? They're together now, they're away from Doriath, well, you know. They could be like, hey, what's guts. You know, I hear Vinyamar's great these days, and it's pretty lonely out there. Let's go out, make a little house by the beach, you know, retire. Um, But to do that would be to be stealing Fingal's gem, right? Would be to leave his own vow unfulfilled. Um, He's got to choose between his love and his oath. If he chooses his love rather than his oath, if he chooses to stay with Luthien, he's breaking his oath. And he's stealing Thingol's gem, not Morgoth, or he's got to steal Morgoth's gem. So his only, the only thing that is not an option, is stealing neither one of them, right? He can't say, um, I can't be with Luthien, because that wouldn't be right. It would be breaking my oath. But I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to to Angband either, right? That's not an option. She's going to stay with him. Either she stays with him and they go to steal the jewel, or else she stays with him and they go somewhere else, and he's stealing Thingol's jewel. Right. Huan is pretty clear on the situation here. The two of you are bound together. Luthien must either die alone or death with thee defy beside thee, marching on your fate that hidden before you lies in wait. Um, uh, notice a grammatical point here. Um I'm um I'm I'm here uh, remembering that wonderful paper that uh, uh, recent uh, uh, our, the recent graduate of our uh, of our graduate program uh, Sparrow Alden gave at MythMoot last year the year before last um, about the uh, the athrabeth. Um You notice you notice how uh, Huan shifts his pronouns. One, of one fair gem, thou must be leaf. Uh, be thief, thou must here choose if v- vow to break is still thee loath, right? Or death with thee defy. And then he shifts, marching on your fate, that hidden before you lies in wait. That is not an accident. That is a deliberate shift. Thee is a singular, second person singular. You is second person plural. He, Huan, is addressing Baron at first. Of one fair gem, you Baron, thou... Must be If vow to break is still the loath... Talking about Baron's choices, right? Or death with thee... She's going to defy death with thee. Beside thee, marching on your fate together. The two of your fate. That hidden before the two of you lies in wait. Right? Huan gets it. Right? You have a fate together. Your fate is bound together. In other words, it's not just that Huan gets something that Baron doesn't get... I think Huan gets something that Luthien doesn't get either, right? Remember, Luthien was all like, hey, Mr. Mortal, not dying is not so much fun for elves, actually, right? Don't forget, I'm going to be going back to Doriath and looking at the pitiless waters forever and ever, right? And what does Huan say? Mm, actually, no, no, not, not, not necessarily true. Their fates are tied together. Huan perceives this. We've had no reference in the poem so far, to Luthian sharing his fate of death, of her becoming mortal, it's not really been on the table. Not explicitly. Huon seems to be the one bringing this up. She, just as he has two choices, either to seal one gem, gem or the other, she has two choices death or death, right? Defying death beside thee or dying alone. Not dying? Not an option, Huon says. And I think... I think... I think it's it's really interesting. I do think that this is something that we're seeing here for the first time. I mean, again, it's not been talked about here. um, In... um, um and yeah, exactly. Oh prophetic hound, Exactly. exactly, Tom, exactly. Um he reveals something I think that neither one of them were really understanding. Um he has a ch- Baron has a choice of thefts, she has a choice of deaths. Um he cannot any longer preserve her from death. Remember that's made more explicit in the published Silmarillion, what I was just quoting is from the published Silmarillion. Um uh yeah, yeah. Um yeah, good, Josiah. Yes, good. There is that sort of glimpse forward. Um, in his doom was Luthien snared and deathless in his dying shared. Um, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It's been it's been alluded. It's been hinted at. But notice that's for our benefits. Um, that's the narrator of the poem saying that. Um, that's foreshadowing. We don't have any reason to believe. I think that Baron and Luthien are thinking that way or understanding that. Um, sometimes. Because the story of Luthien and Baron is so important, is so dominant uh, in Tolkien's world, um, sometimes people, sort of Tolkien readers, will sometimes talk as if like it's an obvious given. Like obviously, if an elf and a man, um, uh, uh, you know, marry, then the elf is going to you know become mortal. Nobody knew that. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that was not a thing, right? Um, no reason to think that that's a thing. Um, but, um, anyway, um, it's, uh, this seems to be the moment of anything where, the, where they're coming to understand that. Again, this is to me what I think is so important about this whole section. Um, you know, there's a, I can understand, I, I could understand the impulse of any reader who reading through this section was sort of thinking, like, man, this is kind of dragged out, right? Like, the stay behind. Oh, no, I don't want to. No, you really should. Oh, but I can't. No, I'm going to, I don't want you to come to death with me. No, I will face death with you. It's like, okay, you know, let's go along to the facing of death already. I, I can understand that. But I think this is such a crucial moment because both of them are really only now coming to understand. um, coming to understand exactly how strange is the adventure, uh, you know, on which uh, they have begun here. Um, They're only now really coming to understand their fate, and I think that that is a crucial step prior to their going to Angband together. Um, Okay. Um, Hmm. All right, I'm going to skip a passage that I was going to do. I'm just not going to have time. Um, let's jump ahead to... what's let's, let's, let's move on to Angband. So I'm going to... The passage I wanted to do was the, the sort of dream that he has um, when he gets shot with the arrow, right? When he takes the arrow for her from, 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 from Kurufin. Um, and then he's restored back... Um, it's, it's interesting about death and being called back from death. There's some more sort of foreshadowing here, um, but let's 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 move on more quickly to the death. All right. Um, notice the imagery here. We'll be we'll be quick on the next two passages, just in case we weren't thinking about it. Again, this is some of the passages that I, that I was thinking about when I said it's not just that he's facing uncounted odds of probable dying or probably being killed. Um, He is is going into death itself. Dorna land of thirst, they after named it. Waste accursed, the raven-haunted, roofless grave of many fair and many brave. Thereon the stony slopes look forth from deadly nightshade falling north from somber pines with pinions vast, black-plumed and drear, as many a mast of shable-shrouded ships of death slow-wafted on a ghostly breath. Thence barren grim Now gazes out across the dunes in shifting drought, And sees afar the frowning towers of thunderous Thangarodrim lower, Where thunderous Thangarodrim lowers Okay, could the image be any more clear? Right, he is standing on the slopes of deadly nightshade, Which are black plumed and drear like the masts of sable shrouded ships of death so it's like he has wafted onto the shore by the ships of death, and he's come to the place which is a raven-haunted, roofless grave, right? Like, okay. I'm tracking with you. right? We've got it now. It's it's, 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 this is not explicitly a descent into the underworld, but it's a lot like a descent into the underworld, right? It is, it is the land of death itself into which Baron is going. Um... We get this same thing emphasized when they actually enter Angband. Uh, This is in Canto 13, this is after they've passed Karkaroth. Um, and are, are now descending down towards Morgoth, the beginning of Canto Thirteen, Into the vast and echoing gloom more dread than many-tunneled tomb in labyrinthine pyramid where everlasting death is hid down awful corridors that wind down to a menace dark enshrined down to the mountain's roots profound devoured, tormented, bored, and ground by seething vermin spawned of stone down to the depths they went alone. Man, just awesome. Um, yeah, the, Kate. Aren't the down, down, down lines are uh, 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 really cool? I mean, that is that is, that is pretty awesome. Um, I, but again, the imagery is really clear, right? More dread than many tunneled tomb and labyrinthine pyramid, where everlasting death is hid. Uh, you know, it's um, it's uh, yeah, Kate, and the way it ends on alone, yeah, so cool, isn't it? Um, um, so again we're going down into the land of death. It's like he's going down to uh, to death itself. Um, my point in bringing up these passages is not just to say, like, don't we see the way in which he's associating this with death? But to point to the over, especially in the context of what we've just seen, right? Um, that is in the previous discussions about death and immortality. Um... There is a sense, bear with me here, there is a sense in which this poem is moving in an almost allegorical direction. Um, I know everyone objects whenever, you know, <laughs> Tolkien fans have heard Tolkien's words when Tolkien, in the preface to the second edition of The Fellowship of the Ring, urged people not to read allegories into his books. Um, it hasn't stopped journalists, but by golly, Tolkien fans have taken that to heart. Uh, and uh, There's almost always somebody who jumps down my throat if ever I suggest that Tolkien is doing something allegorical. Um, he does use allegory. Sometimes he even confesses to using it on purpose, as uh, in Smith of Wooten Major, for instance. Um, and it's pretty obvious that he's using it in Leaf by Nigel as well. And even in moments when he's not just being purely allegorical there's often a kind of an, an allegorical uh sort of under uh, uh sort of underlayer implications to um uh to to the story that he's telling the way that Angband is associated with the lands of the dead it gives the whole this whole element of the story. first of all, it recalls explicitly um, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. The story of Orpheus and Eurydice kind of looms and and the middle English versions are Orpheo, which Tolkien translated. Um, it uh, that that story kind of looms over the Baron and Luthian story anyway, right? I mean, you know the, especially with the when when later on, you know, of course, in the Silmarillion version, um, when Luthien does her her Orpheus impression, right, and goes to the under, goes, stands before Mandos and sings her song that causes, I and mean, it's the parallel with Orpheus is explicit, though gender reversed at that point. But you can even see it here, right? The way that the, that they, the two of them, are descending to the underworld. In which case, w- what's in the position? Who's in the position of Eurydice? right tom and she doesn't blow it like orpheus did you're absolutely right if uh, if if they're descending into the underworld like orpheus who's yeah the Silmarils. the Silmarils are eurydice right um and that that's really kind of interesting but um again i can't get away from the fact um He's been saying no, I don't want you to die, and she's like, no, I would rather die than live a life of immortality. And Huon's like, you're both wrong. Um, she's already chosen more. She has already chosen death. Um, Baron is going to choose to try to steal Morgoth's jewel rather than stealing Fingold's jewel, so um, he's also going to choose death. So the two of them are going to go and they're going to face down death together and try to shake its towers and gates, right? Um, that sounds like it, it is at least a sort of semi allegorical foreshadowing of what is to come later on. Um, so, I, that's, anyway, I, I, and I just all of this language, I just can't avoid it. I, I I can't get away from it in this part of the poem. Um, okay. So let's think. What about the end of the poem? Where was this poem headed? I ask, the, I ask this this here. Because the end of the poem, uh, the end of the story, the end of Baron and Luthien's story, ends up being about death and mortality. This was even true back in the tale of Tenuvio in the Book of Lost Tales, back when the two of them were both elves. Right, they were both elves. They both died, and go over to Mando's, and they get released by Mando's, and it's not hundred percent obvious, like why. But but they're they're made mortal when they return, and again, that's not hundred percent obvious why they're made mortal exactly. Um, so, but anyway, I mean, the question of like you know their being together and mortality and immortality, um, it's a little confused and and uh, and a little bit unclear. At the end of the tale of Tenuvio exactly sort of what's going on, but he, we're already going there we're already raising those issues at the end of the tale of Tenuvio my argument here is that those issues are are front and center in the Baron and luthian story that we get in uh, in the lay of Lathian I mean I think there's really just no question about that um, and we see it from you know as you were uh, Pointing out, Josiah, I think it was you that was pointing this out. Um, yes, um, we saw it foreshadowed back in Canto Four when they got together, right? Um, so, um, that's uh, that's what we should expect, right? Um, uh, it's it's it is now what was a kind of odd afterthought. Oh, yeah. Afterthought is an awkward word to use, but. Um, Anyway, what was a weird kind of epilogue, that's what I want to say, what was a sort of just a weird and and kind of hard to understand or hard to explain epilogue of the tale of Tenuvio in the Book of Lost Tales is now the thematic centerpiece of the entire story. And all of the release from bondage stuff, I think, that we're getting in this poem is meant to be building up to that. Um, all of the, you know, the number of times we see people getting released from bondage, different people in different ways, and that motif going on and building and building, I am 100% convinced that the release from death, that Mandos releasing Baron to Tenuvio um, at the end of the poem, is the big, you know, the, the, the big culminating release from Bondage um, that we were building up to the whole time. Except I'm not even really sure about that. Um, that is, I think that's going to be the biggest literal release from Bondage. You know, all of the people who are kept in prison and set free one way or another, um, certainly the setting free of Baron from Mandos is going to be the greatest and most culminating of those literal release from incarceration moments uh, of the poem, And yet again, I think the whole question about release from bondage ultimately comes down to death and the question of mortality. What exactly is release from bondage? Is escape from death? I titled this class The Great Escape. Of course, the phrase that Tolkien uses to talk about um, the idea of, uh, of, of the escape from death. Or, as perhaps the elves write their stories about escape from deathlessness, this story is both, in a sense. Right This story deals with both of those great escapes, the escape from death and the escape from deathlessness. I don't pretend to guess exactly where he was going to go um, at the end of the story. Um, but these seems to be these seem to be the things that stake if we, if we trace these themes and we see the way it's headed. Um, this certainly seems to me to be what's going to be at issue there at the end. And where he's kind of going with this. Um, this is where I, um, you know, again, Baron's, the choice to make Baron a mortal and Luthien an elf, that choice which has happened, which seems to have happened in the context of the poem, the lightest leaf on, Lin- on linden tree poem that we saw embedded in the Way of the Children of Huron, um, that choice. Is the turning point of the whole thing, and where again that whole immortality mortality thing—that is the awkward epilogue on the tale of Tenuvio becomes now the absolute centerpiece of the whole poem. Um, I think this is awesome. You know, the the tale that Lay of Lathian is a great story, and I love uh, in general. I love the poetry. I don't think this is the greatest poem he ever wrote. I mean, I think that. There, I mean, I, I think that Light as Leaf on Linden Tree is a better poem, actually, um, as far as his actual sort of poetic usage. I mean, there are certainly passages and, and moments in this poem that I absolutely love. Um, but, to me, I, seeing Tolkien, I would have loved to see Tolkien's full-length poetic treatment of Luthien in Mandos and what happened after. Um, that is on my really, really, really short list of stuff that Tolkien didn't finish that I really, really, really wish he had finished. Um, yes, uh, the tour in The Fall of Gondolin that's published in Unfinished Tales, that's very, very high on my list. The Fall of Arthur is very, very high on my list. Um, this It is for this reason that the Lay of Lathian is also very, very high on my list. Children of Hurin, I'm interested in the Children of Hurin. You know, we're talking about the kind of fun things in some ways. We also talked about the ways in which I almost find it a relief that the Children of Hurin wasn't finished, because I would have hated to see that really fun and admirable Turin that we saw in the Lay of the Children of Hurin come to the grief that we know lies before him uh, in the rest of his story. Um... Uh, so there is a part of me that is glad that The Way of the Children of the Children of Huron wasn't finished, um, but um, but The Way of Lathian, I would have loved to hear Luthien and Mendoz um, when we got that, and see how all of this stuff, how all the release from Bondage stuff really was going to be brought together um, at the end. I don't really know, but again, I'm pretty sure that that's where, sort of thematically, that's where all signs point anyway, that that's where things were going to go. Uh, let me touch on a few other um, issues before we. Okay. Um. All right. Let t- Yeah. Let's touch on a few other, um, a few other issues that I can't bear to leave behind, and we shouldn't leave behind entirely. Um, one is Barron's farewell poem. Uh, this is a beautiful poem, of course one of those other moments is the second moment the first was the the, the combat between Felagund and Thu um, where when writing the prose Silmarillion, Tolkien was just like you know, whatever, screw it I'm just going to put the poetry in, right? So he goes and he quotes that, he just, you know, segues into a direct quotation from the Lay of Lathian. The other moment is Baron's song, right? When Baron uh, is doing his farewell, sweet earth and northern sky, again let's just put the verse straight into the prose Silmarillion because that best captures what's going on here and he doesn't seem to even want to do that in prose. So let's look at Baron's song farewell now hear ye leaves of trees your music in the morning breeze farewell now blade and bloom and grass that see the changing seasons pass ye waters murmuring over stone and mirrors that silent stand alone farewell now mountain vale and plain farewell now wind and frost and rain and mist and cloud and heavens air ye star and moon so blinding fair that still shall look down from the sky on the wide earth though barren die though barren, die not. And yet deep, deep, whence comes of those that weep no dreadful echo, lie and choke in everlasting dark and smoke. That's really cheerful. Right? So he's saying farewell to things, right? Goodbye, leaves. (laughs) This is, um, if, uh, uh, it's probably unkind to compare this uh, poem to uh, uh to good night moon though i can't help but think of good night moon farewell leaves farewell mountain farewell vale and plain farewell mount waters murmuring over stone um uh, <laughs> but anyways he's saying he's saying farewell to everything um um uh farewell noises everywhere um Good night, Morgoth, exactly. Um, I I love his segue at the end. I mean, again, it's kind of awful, in a way. Um, Farewell, ye star and moon, so blinding fair. Which ones? The ones that still shall look down from the sky on the wide earth, though barren die. Um, it's It's like Sam's recognition, except opposite, right? Sam you know, in dread of death and in the and, and under shadow looks up and sees that there's still light and high beauty above the reach of the shadow, right? Um, Baron looks up and says I'm probably going to die, but the light, the, the stars are still going to be shining down even after I'm dead, right? No problem. Right? Actually doesn't really, what doesn't really, it's not the shadow that doesn't really matter, it's me that doesn't really matter, right? Um, though Baron die, you're going to keep shining down, or even if I don't die, even if I'm for example, imprisoned somewhere deep, deep, where even the noises of my weeping, even the dreadful echoes of my weeping, will not emerge to the surface. If I'm lying and choking in everlasting dark and smoke, you'll still be shining down. It'll all be, it'll be. Good. Gets a little distracted there, sort of imagining his own torment, right? No matter, but but I shouldn't make fun. No matter how bad it gets, right? No matter how dark and awful it gets, the stars. Are 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 still gonna are still gonna shine down, Karina <laughs> says. The, the the moon The moon doesn't care if um, if 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 Baron dies. Um, well, boy, Karita thinking of that really that really puts Good Night Moon in a, t- in a totally different context, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, never mind, never mind. <clears throat> um, uh. Now, <laughs> after this, after saying farewell to things and recognizing. You know, sort of the beauty of the world around him, which is not, in fact, dependent upon him, but is going to keep Merrily going on and doing its seasonal changes and shining down on things even after he's dying or even after he's being kept imprisoned and tortured for a very, very long time, deep, deep below the earth. Farewell. We've got another farewell. Farewell, sweet earth and northern sky, forever blessed, since here did lie and here with lissom limbs did run beneath the moon, beneath the sun, Luthien Tenuviel, more fair than mortal tongue can tell. Though all all to ruin fell the world and were dissolved and backward hurled, unmade into the old abyss, yet were its making good for this, the dawn, the dusk, the earth, the sea, that Luthien on a time should be exactly, Tom. The thing I think is awesome, but the reason I really wanted to make sure we talked about Baron's farewell poem here is that I totally understand why Tolkien felt that he, could, he had to quote this poem in the prose Silmarillion. What I don't understand is why he chose only to quote half of it, right? I mean, maybe he didn't end up liking the Good Night Moon part of the poem. Um, I don't know if he just, again, if he just disliked that part and thought the second part was better, and it is kind of better. Um, But, 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 but... The second half makes so much more sense after the first half, exactly as Tom says. He's just said, I don't matter, right? The world is going to go on unchanged even if I die. But Luthien matters, right? Um... I am merely a bit player on the stage of this world, and if I die, it will have no consequence. She justifies the existence of the entire world. Um, His his description couldn't be more opposite, right? The world shall roll along unnoticing if I die or am tormented for a long time deep, deep deep beneath the earth. Luthien is the culmination and purpose of, of the existence of all of these things. Right? Even if... So, so he says, if I die, the light will still shine. Right? Then he says, if the whole world collapses, if everything else dies, it will have been worth it. That Luthien on a time should be. Um, that's, uh, that, that's, that's... 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 Again... The context in which this the first half of the poem puts the second half of the poem is I think really really important um and really and really changes our view of that um uh, yeah, yeah, um anyway, I wanted to point out the two halves of the poem thing there's a lot more that we that could be said about that but uh uh but I will leave that I will leave that to you guys um Let's run on and look at a couple other things. Um, one, I couldn't pass this, this. Is a total side note, but I couldn't pass this passage up. Um, Not may the fragrance fair enclose the order, the odor of immortal flowers in everlasting spring neath showers that glitter silver in the glass in the grass of Valinor, where'er did pass Tinuviel, such air there went. From that foul devil-sharpened scent its sudden sweetness no disguise enchanted dark to cheat the eyes could keep if near those nostrils drew snuffling in doubt. Thus Baron knew upon the brink of hell prepared for battle and death. So they're meeting Karkaroth and Baron has this moment where he's like, okay, we're disguised. And then he's like, oh, shoot! Karkaroth is going to be able to smell her! Right? Exactly, Brian. It smells like elves. That's what Karkaroth and Bilbo Baggins have in common, is they both smell the fragrant. Th- they both go, hmm, smells like elves, right? Remember, this poem, in particular, this part of this poem. Remember when this poem was written? This part of the poem? 31, 1931. He's already writing The Hobbit now. In fact, the the dates are a little uncertain, but he may even have already written the sentence in Chapter 3 of The Hobbit, where Bilbo says, hmm, it smells like elves, right? Um, When he writes this. So, it's... We're... we're, you, You know you have to think of The Hobbit when you think of the tale of Tenuvio, because it's the next thing in Tolkien's writing. Here they're even overlapping, right? Um, so, that line, which always strikes people as so funny when Bilbo says, mm, it smells like elves. Um, it's, it's, uh, the, it's like Luthien. This is the description of Luthien's body odor, okay? The odor of immortal flowers in everlasting spring neath showers that glitter silver in the grass in Valinor. That's what uh, Luthien's body odor is like she always smells like that. This odor uh, is, is around her all the time, and, and here's Baron thinking, oh man, the wolf is so going to smell that. She doesn't smell like a vampire at all. Right? Um, um, yeah, exactly. Wind-smelling when, when sweet, fragrant, and like immortal flowers is, uh, um, not, uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. When the uh, incredible delicious deliciousness of your body odor gives away your disguise as a vampire bat, it's like, you know, <laughs> hashtag elf princess problems. Um, but anyway, I, I just it, this is the passage. Um, if okay, when I'm like talking about my book to, like, middle scores, this isn't the answer that I give. But if Tolkien fans ask me why on earth does Tolkien say, does, you know, Bilbo say it smells like elves, what do elves smell like? This is the passage I go to. Th- to me, this is the answer to that question. Um, especially with the chronology, it's just, to me, it's obvious. This is what Bilbo was smelling. Um, so, I couldn't pass that up because, you know, it's really important. Um, notice, even Karkaroth, I don't want to miss Karkaroth entirely, notice what happens here her cloak by white hands woven like a smoke like all bewildering all enthralling all enfolding evening falling from lifted arms as forth she stepped across those awful eyes she swept a shadow in a mist of dreams wherein entangled starlight gleams Sleep, O oh unhappy, tortured thrall Thou woe-begotten fra- fa- Fail and fall Down, down from anguish Hatred, pain, from lust From hunger, bond and chain To that oblivion, dark and deep The well, the lightless pit Of sleep For one brief hour escape the net The dreadful doom of life Forget um, Even Karkaroth is being Released from bondage Right? The bondage of consciousness. Remember, he is unsleeping. He seems to have been cursed with the inability to sleep in order to make him a more effective watchdog. Right, um, The creatures of Fu as the creatures of Angband, are tortured and tormented by what uh, Morgoth has done to them. When she puts Karkaroth to sleep, she explicitly is releasing him Sleep, oh unhappy, tortured thrall. You poor, miserable, unfortunate slave. Um, and she grants him sleep, thereby, of course, saving their lives and enabling them to enter. But um, but again, I think it's... it's This is her context thing, and I come back. This is even more strong, more clear um, than her pity towards Thu was. Um, um, but it seems to me of a similar kind. Um, so again, even here, we see... Uh, So notice that we see not only the release from bondage as this continuous motif, but Luthien being the releaser from bondage, right? The one who brings release from bondage and her song, right? Yeah, pity does rule the fate of many, it seems, uh, Tom. Um, And and Tom, you're absolutely right. Of course, your your implication here is, of course, very right. Um, Notice the parallels, right? Um, The parallel between Frodo's bitten-off finger and Baron's bitten-off fist um, is pretty clear, right? Even Sam sees the parallel. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know that. Um, uh, that is, I mean, I'm thinking of Sam's line when he says, uh, "You know, I, I'd have given him a whole hand of mine rather." Um, he would rather have been, uh, you know, Sam, uh, Sam, the one-handed. Um, anyway, um, uh, see, he's he's Sam is Sam is Luthien when he's setting Frodo free from the tower. He's he he you know would be in Baron's uh, position. Um, uh, Anyway. um, So, okay. uh, So, yeah, the parallel between... Notice how she has pity on Karkaroth here, and then Karkaroth seems to return the pity by biting off Baron's hand, which seems like it's a bad thing. Uh, The Gollum parallel with the pity on Gollum, and then he comes back and bites off Frodo's finger, which seems like a bad thing. Uh, You know, again... What exactly would he have done with the death of Karkaroth exactly? Because, of course, it's Karkaroth that is eventually going to bring Baron to death and bring about the ultimate release from bondage um, of the two of them through the two of them. Anyway, so tantalizing to see where that would have gone. Notice even the Balrogs get set free. That is, they they also go into sleep. Um, but notice, who also is finally being uh, is finally being released from bondage? The Silmarils, right? Are our, our, our Eurydice. And o'er the host of hell they're shown with a cold radiance clear and wan. The Silmarils, the gems of fate imprisoned in the crown of hate. Impr- they're imprisoned, right? They need to be set free. Um... Uh, yeah yeah so again we can see that we can see that coming in and again how that was going to come in with this uh, imagining you know seeing the way in which this is all being tied together with Karkaroth and with the Silmaril and Baron's hand and, and the Silmaril that's gonna uh, that's gonna be bound around uh, uh, Luthien's throat um, you know would, would even have gone that far would this poem have gone all the way up to their deaths their second deaths right um when uh when she has the Silmarillion you know i oh, i wonder i don't know i mean it's uh um and you might be thinking why am i saying i don't know where this story was going to go and what he was going to do we have the published Silmarillion right so we know where he was going to go no we know where he eventually went That's not the same thing right it's not the same thing as saying where the momentum of this poem was taking him what you know what Ending he had in his mind, where he, where he would have been taken by this poem that he was writing, um, had he gotten to the end of it. Um, I think what he put down in prose as the end of the story much later is not the is not a substitute for um, where this poem would have taken him had he completed it. Um. Okay, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> I have three more slides that I want to do. Um, three more passages uh, I, want, I want to talk about the confrontation with Morgoth maybe I should stop come to think of it we could that we could put off next time that's not so bad that's not so bad we could start off with the with the, the confrontation with Morgoth then go yeah okay let's do that let's do that okay so next time we will look at the confrontation with Morgoth in Canto 13. Um, the I have two questions that I want to ask about that. Question number one. Why do we start the, this, the Canto with the fall of Fingolfin? Why do we go there? Okay? Why do we get the entire story of the duel between Morgoth and Fingolfin? It seem, I mean, it's not like it's completely irrelevant, but... Um, um, though I love the fact that you know when they're getting their baroness to like walk around the pits in the ground from where Gron smashed down, right? You know he's like it's, it's hard to approach the gates because the the terrain is really irregular now, thanks to that. Um, I, I, I really love that that reference. Why? How does it fit? What does it have to do with the story of Baron and Luthien? I don't believe that it's just a a, a, a diversion. I don't think he's merely digressing. Why do we get that? How does that connect with the story of Baron and Luthien and their confrontation with Morgoth? How does it prepare? How does it prepare us for um, Luthien and Morgoth later? Second question: What's Morgoth's plan with Luthien? He has that long, disturbing speech to Luthien. What does he want exactly? What does that speech show us about him? Remember, like, the vow that Thû was trying to get them to swear? We talked about this. We spent a long time looking at this in the last class and thinking about sort of the theology underlying, you know, like, orcs-loving hatred. Remember all, 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 all that stuff we were talking about? What does Morgoth's statement to Luthien tell us about him? What motivates Morgoth? What's, what's, what's in Morgoth's mind? What are his desires? That's the other question I wanna I wanna come to. So, um, then, then we're going to uh, finish up by looking at we're gonna we're gonna I, I read C.S. Lewis's commentary because it's really fun. Um, I don't know how long we're going to spend talking about C.S. Lewis's commentary, but if there's any questions that you have or things that you notice about the commentary, email me. I would be happy to to come back and look at any passages from Lewis's commentary that you're particularly interested to talk about. Um, uh, so please do let me know there. Um, otherwise, I'm probably not going to spend an enormous amount of time on it, but we'll, we'll mention it a little bit. Then we'll come back and and look uh, somewhat briefly. I'm not going to look at great length, but I want to look at 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 the lay of Lathian recommenced. And my main purpose there, the main question I will have about the recommencement of the lay of Lathian is just where does he seem to be taking the poem? What's the what's the and you know, when he does come back to it, can we see? sort of different directions in which this new poem seems to be going, what seem to be the fundamental differences between the poem as we see it recommenced and and the earlier poems? So those are the things we'll be looking at next time. I am very confident that we will get through all of them and be finished, and then we will uh, be moving on to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell thereafter. So thank you very much everybody, and um, I uh, will wish you all a good night and we'll see you guys next week when we will absolutely, unquestionably finish The Lays of Beleriand. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night.